this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 26. We're recording on Friday, November 1st. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, welcome to November. It's nice to have you. Thank you. I am happy to have November, even though the high here in Richmond is going to be 81 today. Yeah, it's warm here, too. It feels yeah, I don't like want to uh, talk about tropical it. storm. Uh, but we're ready to fall back. Yeah, looking forward to fall back. Um, Extra Which means hour. I get to get up with the kids at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. But uh, Extra hour of, of sleep and reading time yeah, in my house this go. weekend. That's a, that's a really excellent. Well, it is, it is getting into prime reading weather. It's a little rainy, a little cool. You can mm-hmm. drink something hot, uh, and it's uh, big great chunky out there. novel. Yeah, yep. that's right. And we've, there's some. Well, last week we talked about. There's a bunch of big ones oh, yeah. coming out or out already. Uh, let's do follow up. Yeah, lots of follow up. We do this week. Several episodes back, way way back, we got. And I think maybe when it was uh, Nabokov's birthday, we got down a rabbit hole talking about the Playboy interview yeah. and how Playboy's interview with Vladimir Nabokov was was one of the uh, the the features that really launched the Playboy interview as a, a thing that mm-hmm. was um, taken seriously. Yeah, we were talking about uh, Alex Haley did the first one with uh, Miles Davis, and that really oh. launched the the whole uh, the form. But anyway, go for it. Okay, yeah, then I was totally off. On... No, no, we were talking about that one, too. We were talking about the, <laughs> the Playboy interview as like a literary thing that's yeah. in how it got started. And, and I mean, steam. so they got some, they've had some heavy hitters over the years, big cultural figures, and longform.org now is featuring uh, the Playboy interview with Vladimir Nabokov. I spent some time reading it earlier this week. Really interesting stuff there. Um, Playboy, you know, for all of the, the reasons that people uh, can and do criticize it, and for all of the things that are not perfect about it. It, they they do a good interview and they get some big names and uh, talk about a publication that has a large readership. So uh, if you are interested in what that might look like, we'll drop the link into the show notes and you can you know dive in and hear what Playboy had to ask the writer of Lolita. Let's do one more quick follow up. Um, we talked a while ago that uh, the FAA was thinking about lifting the restriction on um, personal electronics and e-readers during takeoff and landing. And according to the FAA, they announced on Thursdays that air travelers will soon be able to use their tablets and other electronic devices from gate to gate. Um, it's Holla! Not, it's not sh- I'm not sure. It doesn't give a date, um, but it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. So uh, we're hoping for the holidays. I'm sure it'll be a matter of days if, before they get this. Yeah, thing if this could out. take effect before Thanksgiving, that would be so fantastic. Yeah. So um, a small win. Um, mm-hmm. Air travel gets marginally less crappy. Uh, yes. And thank you. Senator Claire McCaskill from Missouri was instrumental in lobbying for that. And even though we are from Kansas, we should interview her. Maybe she's like a huge reader and she just can't bear the thought of flying from uh, St. Louis to DC all the time. Like she must have to do uh, without being able to read her Kindle or whatever. Yeah. 
At any rate, I'm super excited. Yeah, so I think a great. lot of readers will be Small really way. happy to hear this. Now you don't have to, like, I find myself packing for trips, mm-hmm. thinking, okay, I have my tablet and my phone, but I'm going to need something to read in that window yeah. of time that you can't do it. So you've got to throw an extra book in. It weighs down the carry-on bag. This you, We can streamline <laughs> one device. Well, I can, yeah, that's great. right. You have one device. You don't have to take a paper book if you don't want right. to. Right, you don't have to point. take a paper book to balance out that you know, that reading time where you're not allowed to use your electronic devices. This is good. Thank you for being logical FAA. Yeah. And you could also, since you can keep your phone on, you could also try an audiobook. Oh. Right. Oh, oh look oh, at that segue. Look at this. Wait for it. That is how you segue, my friend. Uh, I'd like to talk about our first sponsor, tryaudiobooks.com from Random House Audio. So Random House Audio has developed a website that goes about recommending audiobooks uh, in a little bit different way. Um, it, it tries to go by the kind of use cases and what kind of audiobook listener you are. So do you do it while you're crafting? Do you listen to audiobooks while you're crafting, while you're working out, um, while you are traveling in a car on a plane? Um, they're trying to put together some recommendations built around these different activities. So if you go to tryaudiobooks.com, you can click on you're a runner, you're a crafter, traveling, and see what kinds of titles um, they're selecting for each of those uh, particular activities. Um, and the other thing they'll do is they'll recommend titles based on the length of time you're looking to fill. So if you've got a five-hour drive uh, to the next you know, whatever you're going to in Thanksgiving and you'll be stuck on I-95 for a while, um, you can go listen to, say, the time machine and keep everyone entertained. If you're going to do some running or jogging, uh, it'll tell you not only how many hours the audiobook will fill of your running time, but how many calories you will have burned while you were performing that particular activity and listening to your audiobook. So that's tryaudiobooks.com um, from Random House. And uh, thanks so much for uh, sponsoring the show. All right. We got more follow-up. We got lots of follow-up. Last week, two weeks ago? Yep. For the last several weeks, I guess, I made you uncomfortable. I could feel the blushing Mm -hmm. through the airwaves uh, talking about all sorts of of topics in self-published erotica. And we talked about how a lot of the online retailers, Amazon and Kindle... Kobo, Barnes & Noble, uh, had been removing some self-published erotic titles um, based on offensive and also illegal uh, content. And last week, Kobo issued a a full statement to their writing community, which is called The Writing Life, uh, where writers get information, they can self-publish. So they emailed their self-published authors with some straightforward information. Um, They pulled... um, at one point, they had pulled all self-published books from their UK site while they were working on solving the problem. And so mm. now they're getting uh, some more of the self-published books back onto the Kobo Books uh, website. But they're really looking at the the content that they're putting out there. And so they said... Um, For those few titles that remain unavailable, some feel that we chose a path of censorship. All I can say is that if your dream is to publish barely legal erotica or exploitative rape fantasies, distribution is probably going to be a struggle for you. Sick burn. (laughs) In your face, man. Wow. (laughs) Right. We aren't saying you can't write them, but we don't feel compelled to sell them. And they they go on. But I think uh, that's a very nice, it's a sick burn, but it's also Mm -hmm. a really succinct way of saying, uh, of pointing out what what we had been talking about for the last few weeks, that that when a business chooses not to sell a certain product, it's not censorship. They're making a a business decision and they're completely entitled to make that choice about what they do and don't want to sell and what they do and don't want to put in front of uh, their customers. So Kobo has made some very clear statements now to their self-published authors and to their writing life um, community. 
about mm-hmm. what they will and won't won't do. And they acknowledge in the statement also that many titles live in a gray zone with far more shades than the 50 that sold so well in the past year. Did they use that <laughs> They language? did. That's, oh, that's verbatim, man. baby. Wow. <laughs> Uh, but they say that's what makes this also challenging and interesting. Many of our readers have no problem with an erotic title in their library next to their romance, literary fiction, investing, or high-energy physics books, and we are here for the readers. So erotica stays, a small but interesting part of a multi-million title catalog in all its gray-shaded glory. <laughs> Someone had some fun with this yeah. press release. I mean, if you've got to write a, basically a press release. You, yeah, saying we're not going to publish rape fun. fantasies, like, you know... Do whatever you need to do to get through that one. I thought they pointed that out very nicely uh, and that, you know, we are here for the readers. Right. Uh, And and if most readers are uncomfortable with barely legal erotica and since rape is an illegal thing to do, uh, publishing erotica, that... That seems fair to me. Does that seem fair to you on the whole? That seems very fair to me. I think it's a good statement. They didn't come down too hard. It's clever. Right. There's the requisite more, 50 shades reference. You know, it's not moralistic, nor is it evasive. Right. It's like, it's, we don't want not, to publish this. Or we don't want to distribute this, and right. we're not it's comfortable not, with it. It's not judgmental. I really like, you know, that where they say, we aren't saying you can't write these stories, but we're just saying we don't feel compelled yeah. to sell them. That's fine. It's sort of a, you know, whatever you want to write about in the privacy of your mm-hmm. own home office or, or wherever is your business, but, but it's our business to determine what we can sell and what we can't yeah. sell. Nice job, Kobo. Good job, Kobo. Um, all right. There's, we got several Amazon things to, to wrap up. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so Matchbook, Kindle Matchbook rolled out this week, which we talked about before, and we were both super excited about. Yeah, which I think was, it's a really interesting idea. If you'd bought a print book from Amazon, since really records were kept um, of your print purchase with Amazon, Kindle Matchbook said that um, they would make discounted ebook titles available. So if you'd bought, um, let's say, a, a print version of Telegraph Avenue, Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was an ebook available through the program. You could buy it at a discounted rate, uh, no more than two ninety nine, but all the way from ninety nine, one ninety nine, or two ninety nine. And it launched late last week. Um, they had said October, and I think they just got it in under the October wire. Um, and the disappointment is is that there aren't that many titles. Uh, we knew it would be limited. I think we both expected mm-hmm. not to have everything you ever bought. But um, for example, I looked at my um, available. Um, matches, so to speak. That's both Michelle and my account that we used and with purchase going all the way back to 2006 and only seven titles popped up. Oh, interesting. Um, And I wrote about it in Critical Linking this week and on Twitter, I talked to some readers about it and everyone there was reporting similar numbers between someone, one person had none um, and I think the highest number I saw was 13. Hmm. And these are pretty serious readers. And it looks like um, that Harper Collins is on board are good. We should talk about. We're going to talk about Harper Collins and how they're winning. Um, but there's only about seventy five thousand total available, yeah. which sounds like a lot. But if you're talking about the vast ocean of all of printed history, right. uh, drop in the bucket. So that's where we are. It's kind of like it's you know it's not that different really. I was thinking about this than the available category uh, catalog on Oyster and Scribd right now. There's about mm-hmm. hundred thousand. But it feels smaller, I think, when you realize how many there really are, because you're looking at everything you've ever bought, and you get this list of like six things. Um, Whereas you dive into Oyster or Scribd, and it feels, you know, since it's not limited by what you've bought, it feels much more robust as a catalog. So it's an interesting case in how you approach an existing selection set. Mm -hmm. Um, One feels 
diverse and rich, and the other one feels dry and boring. Right, and and you've got to pay a second time, even right. if it's yeah, just ninety nine cents for a book that you've already read. So you've yep. got to want to read that book, or at least have access to it again in the future mm-hmm. um, digitally. This is uh, we really should like toot our horns and throw some confetti for Harper Collins because yeah. the last several like big new things that have come out, Harper Collins has been either the first or the only big publisher um, of the big five now yep. that uh, Penguin and Random House have combined to jump on board and try this new thing. And uh, just a uh, good job, Harper Collins. Good job, Harper Collins. We need you to know, find out who's doing that of, over there or what team or... Right. Whoever's in charge of, I guess, business development and digital yeah. initiatives is, is doing on... Doing cool stuff. Yeah, is on it. Yeah, the, <laughs> the chief executive VP cool of, stuff. VP of cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're, you know, some of these things will work and some of them won't. And the way that you innovate is you try a bunch of stuff and, and you keep the things that are good and you ditch the things that don't work. And... I just think this is a it's a creative and gutsy way to be rolling into whatever this new era yep. of publishing is. It's so much better than the Frady Cat method. Yes. And and he, so let's talk some numbers briefly um, of the seventy five thousand ish uh, ebooks that are available to be bundled for your print purchases. Harper Collins has nine thousand of those titles. Mm-hmm. Macmillan has fifty. Well, I don't. I, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt has thirty six. But what? Here's what, what, but Rebecca, I, just sputter every uh, day. You sputter. Why, why, why do that? What does that tell you? I, I it's don't not get a it. big enough. It's not a big enough pool to give you any kind of interesting data. I think that's so weird. Like, like it's a this, mistake. Like they meant to put zero and they wrote fifty in the form right, they had to it, send to Amazon. Yeah, or it feels so like strange. it feels like setting this up to be a failed experiment. Like. Well, you mentioned how huge that ocean of all yeah. the books ever published is. And so 50 titles out of that. I haven't seen the list. 400,000 last year alone, not self-published. Yeah, we did talk about seen, that last week. I haven't seen the list of what these 50 are from Macmillan or what the 36 from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt are. Um, but it seems to me that if you're like, well, we're going to pick 36 titles. And so uh, like, unless those are super best-selling titles that a ton of people bought in print and are going to see in their Amazon you know, back catalogs, like what you downloaded yeah. from 2006 forward, the potential pool of people who might want these eBooks is, is small. Um, and the, the potential pool of people who are going to pay for them twice is even smaller. Or and, even know it exists right now. Right. And, and so then, then you get this, the nice self-fulfilling prophecy, I yeah, guess. Yeah, no of, one got it, so we don't you have to know, do it. Right, this, is, this feels yeah. like token trying it. Like, Definitely. we tried it, we put 36 titles into it, and nobody bought those. And so now we're not going to try this new thing. And, like, look, I get it that publishers are intimidated by Amazon mm-hmm. and that they're, they're walking that line between Amazon initiatives and making indie bookstores feel threatened. And there's lots of politics here. Right. I, I get that for sure. But your job as a publisher is to keep your publishing house open. And the way that you're going to do that well, in the future. I, I almost feel better if they're just like, you know what? We're afraid of Amazon. We don't like this as a business model. We're not going to do it. Why not? And if or just you, say, if you, I mean, like that's, I may disagree like, with you, but like there's some weird mm-hmm. ambivalence that I don't know. I find and it, it seems like there's another way to go. Right. Either just, yes, we're going to do it or no, we're not like mm-hmm. Amazon is smart. They've got to know that's a token participation also. Yeah. But if you, if you think this is an interesting idea and you just don't want to do it through Amazon, then maybe you build it yourself with your full yeah. back catalog. And then you buy a bunch of Google ads for those 
those books and somehow try to target people that have read um, your, you know, your big yeah. title in print and might want the ebook. That's harder than it is to go through Amazon. But I think either like you either jump in the pool or you sit on the sidelines. But this like dipping one toe in to say that you did it, it's weak. Well, let me let me go the other way just for a second because there's this other possibility. Uh, and you and I both know it exists that Amazon could have strong armed them into participating at all. True. And said, you know, unless you give us some titles, we're going to do something terrible to you. Somehow. Your buy buttons will accidentally yeah, or, disappear. Or, you know, we're going to ask for more onerous terms or you're not going to be a part of something else. Like that, that is not outside of the realm of possibility with Amazon. That's true. That's true. So it could have been like maybe Amazon wanted like, you know, we've got um, four of the big six, mm-hmm. you know, in the press releases to say stuff like that who are participating. And Macmillan and Houghton Mifflin, like 50 and 36 were the, the minimum number of titles they could negotiate with Amazon and still count as participants. It's possible. I don't want to put it – could, it could not just be publisher um, weak need um, uh, reticence. It could be that they were doing this against their sort of will and that they had to do it to, to protect some other part of their relationship with Amazon. That's certainly possible. We don't know. And unfortunately, we're never going to know because all of these sort of backroom deals don't come to the light of day to our eternal consternation. <laughs> um, <laughs> as you know, I hate that. Uh, but anyway, so that's Kindle Matchbook. We'll see, if it, we'll see what happens to it. We're going to keep our eyes on it. Uh, if you have experience using it, that's great. The other thing I don't know, and I haven't, been, I haven't looked, um, it's also hard to know because so few titles are available, that if you're looking for a book you haven't bought at all yet, uh, say in print, will it give you a little like check mark or something that said this is available for Kindle Matchbook? That I don't know yet. I've looked around a little bit, but I can't, I can't figure it yeah, out. Yeah, I haven't seen anything for that either. You and oh. your generous readings of things. Well, that's not, ge- <laughs> that's just ungenerous of the other side. <laughs> uh, okay, a couple more Amazon things um, because they're, they're talking of trying, speaking of throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks. They've launched a literary journal for short fiction that also happened this week, Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's called Day One. Yes. Yeah, Day One, a literary journal for digital A. It's $10, excuse me, uh, yeah, $10 for the whole year, uh, one a week. Uh, it's a special introductory pricing. Normally, it'll be 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. But what it does, it's dedicated short fiction from debut writers, English translation of stories around the world, and poetry. So this we're talking arty art, art stuff yeah. here. Um, stuff you haven't heard of, poetry and translation. Um, three things notoriously difficult to get much traction with. Um, this is a look, Amazon always shocks me. Uh, but I have to admit, this is more surprising than anything. Nothing because I think it's going to be a big deal, but it doesn't seem like a huge moneymaker. <laughs> and yeah. Amazon is usually in the business of at least trying to tap into markets that could be huge that aren't yet. I don't even see how this could be huge. What do you think they're doing here? I think they're looking for talent. Ah. Um, oh, I like what you're thinking there. Okay, tell – yeah, okay, but explain to the people why. If you're, that- especially if you're a writer of short fiction and poetry – Getting a book deal is even more difficult than getting a book deal is for basically anyone else, uh, particularly poetry. Like the plight of poetry in modern day publishing is is well known, and it's difficult to sell your book uh, to a publisher, and then it's difficult to get a publisher to sell your book to readers. I think that um, a, a lot of people who are looking to build their names in short fiction and in poetry are 
uh, they initially start by submitting to literary magazines, you know, Plowshares, uh, Tin House, Glimmer Train, yep. and those kinds of things. Those are incredibly uh, difficult to get into just by the sheer volume of people who apply to them against the number of stories that can be published in each issue. And they're definitely not going out weekly. Um, I think that Amazon here is looking to say, hey, writers, here is another way that you can try to get your work published and another platform that you can use to try to you know, get out there. Mm. Um, but also they're going to have like thousands and thousands and thousands of applications, I would guess. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Because Amazon is big and, and I don't know that this will be a moneymaker, but they, Amazon can put this in front of their readers. I'm sure that they'll find a lot of interesting ways to put this yeah. uh, literary journal in front of people who shop at Amazon and who might want to purchase it. It's built into your Kindle, so that's yeah. easy to subscribe to. They will, um, but they will have a giant pool of writers who want a larger platform for their work. And we talked last week about Amazon scaling back their adult publishing imprints. Um, it will be interesting to see if and how that develops, but I wouldn't be surprised to see someone, you know, get a, a publishing offer from Amazon's publishing arm after a submission to day yeah. one. That maybe, was good. Yeah, maybe it's a way of cozying up to a whole niche of the book world, which is um, sort of endemically opposed to Amazon as an entity. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so that's day one. You can check that out. One more Amazon thing. They did another th new thing this week. This is not on the agenda, Rebecca. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. This, I, I don't even. You, I took a couple days couple off. Days this week. Off, Do I even so know I, about this? thing? I don't think you even know about this thing. So this is Amazon's new Kindle First service. I don't um, know about this thing. So four books will be available each month for purchase exclusively on Amazon around one month ahead of their proper release date. <laughs> okay, but <laughs> so yeah, right. You know, the, you know, this is interesting. Multiple titles will be available each month. Um, readers will only be able to choose one of them. Okay. Uh, this is on The Verge. I'm reading some of this verbatim, so I'll, I'll link to this in the show. Prime members will get their book for free, while everyone else can purchase theirs for just $1.99. You won't need to own a Kindle to read either one. The e-books will work on Amazon's Kindle apps. So the initial, the initial batch of titles for the foreseeable future will be from Amazon Publishing. So not a surprise there. Mm. Um, not even HarperCollins, the intrepid HarperCollins, <laughs> uh, is interested in trying this out. Okay, I'm significantly less interested in this story now. <laughs> right, I know. I know at first I, I, I showed you a little too much leg, but there's not that much there. Um, so that's interesting, right? They're trying to drum up interest in books before they're available to get some pre-release buzz going. One thing, I think we've talked about this maybe offline, is one thing we would unwillingly but have to pay money for, you and I, mm -hmm. is if a publisher said, you know what, we'll give you the book early, but you got to pay 25% more for it. Yeah. Um, which I don't really understand why they don't do that. I mean, I do understand that, but it's just one if of those... And I think, I mean, think, especially readers of series, like you can read Allegiant, mm. you know, a month early. You can read the final Game of Thrones, whenever that happens. Yeah. You could have gotten The Wheel of Time a month early. Um, that kind of thing. The new would Stephen be, King, uh, right. for us nerds, the new Donna Goldfinch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking the same lines there. Right. <laughs> so this is, just, this is Amazon yeah. playing around. Again, this is one of those things I don't think will amount to much, but what they're doing on the whole is sort of attacking every part of the standard way of doing books, right? Mm -hmm, that right. they all come out on one day. Um, we have some follow-up about why they all come out on Tuesday. Um, but they all come out one day. They all come out to the same person. The, they're available to everyone at the same time for the same price. 
And they're just kind of playing with each of those levers to see which of one they can pull and change things and extract some value out of. Yeah, I'm really interested in how it'll go. How I, I like this idea of making yeah. things available to readers early for either for an extra fee or by for in, if you use a certain device or whatever that mm-hmm. I would definitely pay extra to yeah. be able to get like some maybe one or two books that I really, really want each year early. I suspect um, they're using this for publicity for their own titles. Like people mm-hmm. sign up and see this like, oh, I'm going to try this and they, mm-hmm. not knowing that they're only Amazon imprints or maybe not caring, just they can get it early for free or one ninety nine. Because as we noted last time when um, Larry Kirschbaum has stepped down from Amazon Publishing, it looks like things aren't going super great over at Amazon Publishing. Mm-hmm. So they might be looking for ways to drum up interest in their particular titles. And, and so. if it works for yeah. Amazon publishing and for titles that people are maybe less familiar with or unknown authors who are coming out with their first books with Amazon publishing, then they'll have some interesting numbers to go to publishers and yeah. say, you know, we did this with someone that few readers had heard of. Imagine if you did this with Margaret Atwood's new book. Yeah. And um, we're gonna. I'm, I'm changing up the timeline a little bit because I think this is a good place to talk about one other story that happened while you were gone. Um, and HarperCollins has started selling directly to readers through a couple of new sites hmm. um, around C.S. Lewis. So if you go to Narnia.com, um, you can buy direct from HarperCollins a bunch of Chronicle of Narnia related sites, uh, a Chronicle of Narnia related titles. Um, if you go to, I think it's cslewis.com. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can see a bunch of C.S. Lewis books. And these are portals for um, titles and book buying around popular people, authors, and titles. Um, and there's, you're buying it directly from HarperCollins, so they get to keep more of the money. Um, they get data, which they notoriously don't get from Amazon, for example. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring it up now is they could start playing with things like, well, what if you bought um, – was Harper Collins? It was a Legion of Harper Collins title. I think it might have been. I don't it remember. Is. It is because it broke Harper Collins' um, sales record last week for mm. uh, four hundred fifty thousand copies of Allegiant sold last week, um, which was the the best all time opening for Harper Collins. But say Harper Collins said, "You know what? Maybe we'll release Allegiant a month early, but you can only get it through a Harper Collins site." Yeah, and, and it looks like they've also launched an iOS and Android app called the Harper Collins yeah. Reader. So what if to get a Legion a month early, you had to have the HarperCollins reader and you paid 10 bucks directly to HarperCollins, which they would mm. love because they don't have to yep. split it with Barnes & Noble or iTunes or Amazon or anything like that. HarperCollins has Neil Gaiman. Yeah, they have They have Ann Patchett. Yeah, they've got a lot of people. They've got a lot of people. So I think that's really interesting. And one of my, one of my big questions about the future of publishing the near term is I wonder if Amazon has broken the dam of publishing so much that they're going to break themselves, right? Mm. Because if the idea is to disintermediate publishing, well, Amazon in a large degree is still an intermediary between publishers um, and readers, right? So the next logical step would go right from publishers to readers, and then perhaps the next logical step after that would be go right from authors to readers, but we're a little ways off from that. Um, But I think that's a really interesting idea. I hate the idea of a dedicated sort of publisher-specific reading app. I loathe that. Um, I tweeted this week that is a nightmare hellscape full of screaming monkeys. <laughs> we do not want that. No. Um, because, you know, we have a, we have a random Just house no. app and I'm going to have a Macmillan <laughs> app and HMH app. Like, forget about that. Yeah. There's, and most readers, like, like most readers don't even pay attention to who the publisher of their Mm -hmm. book is, which is not a thing that publishers want to hear or acknowledge as real. But like we think about these things because it's our job to look at who publishes what. 
Um, but I think most average readers, unless it's a, a really well-branded publisher like Melville House or like the New York Review of Books that do a very specific kind of thing, like they sort of do one thing very well and the readers know that and they they follow that. It's it's difficult to do that. I definitely do not want a world where I have to have a HarperCollins app where then I also yeah. have to have like a Houghton Mifflin and a Random House app. Um, I'm messing around at cslewis.com right now since you were talking about it and you can order paperbacks as well. Yep. Um, but to order an ebook, you would get an encrypted EPUB. Yeah, DRM doesn't work on Kindle. There's some problems right, with it that, still. Right, that I guess you could read on your HarperCollins reading app if you downloaded that, but you could also like sideload it onto a Nook or read it on an iPad. Um, but a couple extra steps in the way. I think I understand why publishers have to try mm-hmm. these things, and I'm really glad they're trying them. Um, HarperCollins, I'm just super impressed. <laughs> yeah, I am too. Yeah. It's smart. I hope they do some nice search engine plays for it too, so that like if you Google C.S. Lewis books, cslewis.com will come up first. Like That would be smart. Yeah, um, that was one of their notes. Like, How are people supposed to find out about this? Because it's not like... Why are they going to come here rather than to Amazon or Barnes and Noble to look for the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Like that's the part right. I don't really get yet. Anyway, yeah, the the piece of how do you teach readers mm-hmm. to go do this to get yeah. their books instead of going through the retailers that they're comfortable with that they've been using forever, whether it's Barnes and Noble or uh, the Kindle Store or their local indie bookseller or or whatever. Like that's a huge step to um, mm-hmm. to get Mindshare. And and I think a lot of people might like the idea of it, but then to get them to take that extra step in changing their behavior and purchasing their eBooks through um, or their paperbacks through .com. I, I get why publishers want to try this direct to consumer business. If they, yeah. could make, if they could make it work really well, then they would not be so afraid of Amazon. They might feel more like, okay, so Amazon, like, kick us out, whatever. We have our own way of right. doing things. Um, we don't need you anymore. I, I think that's what publishers are looking for. Well, let me go way- and end around this way, and here's one way to do it. Um, HarperCollins runs the official Chronicles of Narnia Facebook page. Anyone mm. anyone guess how many likes they have? Uh, like a million? 5.4 million. <laughs> so that might be, that's maybe that's how you do it. Yeah. Maybe you push people through social media, you use that as an end around of Google search and Amazon's SEO dominance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who are really engaged with this stuff, the kind of people who might say care about a Chronicle of Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia homepage, maybe it'll work. It's an interesting idea um, to, to sort of get rid of the idea of intermediary bookstores at all. I think telling people how these things work, reminding them over time that this is a way you can buy something is going to be difficult. Um, but it's really interesting. You can see the dollar signs in their eyes, right? Mm-hmm. If they could, if they could capture that thirty percent and the data and the email addresses um, to people who are buying through their own site, um, it seems it seems really interesting. So there's some kinks to work out. The dedicated reader app is a horrible nightmare hellscape, as I said, um, but there's something here that we're going to keep our eyes on. So all right. We're kind of all over the place because we got, got we got so stu- many things. We, we got stuck in sort of new tech stuff, which uh, I really wasn't prepared for the last week of October. But I guess people are trying to get this stuff out for the holidays. Does that make mm. sense? Is like maybe why they're trying to do this stuff? I mean, super smart, especially C.S. Lewis and Narnia. Yeah. com, especially right. if they were selling gifts. Like mm. you can get a say. There's a there's this really pretty new um, illustrated edition of The Hobbit that yeah. Houghton Mifflin Harcourt has done. If I were Harper Collins, I would make a really pretty illustrated, um, complete Chronicles of Narnia, and I would sell that only at CS Lewis. That's a really good idea. I like that. I like that. For the holidays. 
you know, we, we better do another sponsor. Let's do it. I, okay, I'm so. sorry I messed this up, but... Let's do no, this sponsor. is this is a good fit too. It's publishers oh, yeah, trying yeah, yeah. Actually, new things. I, I seg I segued and I didn't even know it. Especially since I since I complained about Macmillan a little bit earlier. <laughs> this is a cool this is a cool thing that Macmillan is doing. Uh, this the, our show today is also sponsored by Swoon Reads. It's swoonreads.com. Uh, it's a revolutionary new crowdsourced romance imprint that's dedicated to publishing books that capture the intensity and the passion of teen love. Uh, so it's a site, swoonreads.com, that Macmillan publishers have built. It's run by um, Fywell and Friends. The founder of that is Gene Fywell, and it's an imprint of Macmillan's children's publishing group. Uh, so this is an opportunity for undiscovered writers and avid romance readers to come together and make books they love happen. So if you are uh, writing romance that's a teen romance story, you can put it up on Swoon Reads. If you are a reader who loves these kinds of stories, you can read stories and vote on them. It's sort of a, a community mm. process um, for putting your books, putting your work out there into the world and getting feedback on it. And as a reader, having a place to discover new writers that you can interact with online. So from the initial discovery of the manuscript to editorial notes, to designing covers and marketing the finished books, um, Swoon Reads aims to be sort of a, a full service operation um, for crowdsourced romance writing. Cool. Yeah, swoonreads.com. Uh, fall in love with falling in love. Oh, Yeah. It's a nice it's, line. I wish I'd it's written pretty, that. It's pretty. Yeah, it's nice. And I think uh, this is smart. It's a, I think it's really smart. There's a really robust community of yeah. romance readers online. And we know, uh, because we've been talking about the writing of romance and erotica online, how much of that is happening in a, in a yep. self-published way, in crowdsourced communities. I think this, it'll be cool to see how this develops. It's still pretty new. Um, but if, you, if you're listening and you have tried Swoon Reads, we'd love to hear about it. Podcast at bookriot.com, either as a writer or a reader. Uh, so if it sounds good to you, check it out. Swoon Thank Reads. you. Swoon Reads. Thank you for sponsoring the show. That reminded me of something else I was going to tell you about offline, but I'll tell you about it right now. Ooh. I got a little oyster nugget that you'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll appreciate. That's, That's not even a euphemism for anything. Show title. Um, so Smashwords is a partner with Oyster. Mm -hmm. um, you can get Smashwords title. And they revealed, and I don't know if they were supposed to or not, uh, oh. a bit of their business arrangement with Oyster. Which Accidental I know you're revelations, interested. man. Yeah, this might even be insider baseball for people who don't even like insider baseball. But uh, so the deal is, is that if say say you have a one of your titles is on Oyster through Smashwords, you wrote it, right? Mm -hmm. So for every time someone gets past ten percent of the way through the book, you will receive sixty percent of the cover price or the, the list price for that book in compensation. So they're saying, like, if someone gets 10% of the way in for it, that's enough that Oyster will compensate that person, and you get a discount. But I thought that was a really interesting way of doing it. I hadn't considered that um, hmm. as a uh, compensation model. I have no idea if that's what HarperCollins and some of the other partners are getting. But for Smashwords, that, that's their deal. Um, Smashwords is largely a platform. Swoon Reads made me think of it because it's a self-publishing community mm -hmm. for writers and readers. And so I think their general list price is pretty low, a few bucks. Um, so I don't know how that will compare to some of the things like the John Irving titles on um, mm. from HarperCollins or something like that. But anyway, I thought you'd be interested in that, and our readers would be interested in knowing that that's kind of the compensation model. It's a lot. So it's a lot. It's not what we thought. Like it's not like a Spotify model where it's like a few cents. Yeah. Right? Um, that's really interesting. Also, that's really interesting information for 
authors to have, like, yeah. especially, I don't know if, if it's in those details that you saw, um, if Oyster will give them like 300 people opened your book, but mm. only 20 of them made it more than 10% of the way in. Yeah. I don't know. And like, it, what time frame do they have to do that 10%? That's a really good question. Um, I'm sure those are all outlined, but that's all mm. I know. That's you now. You now know what I know. I can't tell you anymore. I, just I a little kill oyster you. nugget. Just a little oyster nugget. Okay, can, let's do. Since can I? I just want to have one more oyster nugget because yes. I just noticed it this week after yeah. their their update. Um, when you're reading in Oyster, which is the like Netflix for eBooks app that, uh, if you're new to the show, that Jeff and I are both in love right. with lately. Uh, it shows you how many, it says the number of pages that are left in your chapter, and that's the number of screens that you have left to read. Mm. But also it shows in tinier, like paler font, how many minutes that will take you or oh, an estimation. Have you noticed that? No. Yeah. It's great. Like if you, if you tap on the screen a little bit where it brings up like the percentage of the book that you're through and, um, the options, you know, to click back out to your menus right next to it, it'll, it will show in like tiny gray font, like, you know, 49 pages, which is 49 screens, uh, 35 minutes. Wow, that's and, really interesting. Yeah, I've been reading. Um, I've been breaking my rule against taking devices with screens into my bedroom, and I've been reading Oyster at night in bed. And it's great, especially then. Of like, okay, I'm kind of tired, but this is a chapter <laughs> Maybe turn. Maybe I can and knock I, this one out. Do I want to read another chapter? And I don't really know yet as a reader, like how many screens per minute I can do mm -hmm. the way that, you know, you can flip through a paper book and be like, oh, it's just 10 more pages. I, I can do that before I fall asleep. So I've been enjoying that little uh, special feature of Oyster. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Also. All right. We're going to have to hustle here. Uh, <laughs> right. Let's see. You know what? Let's do the big story that was on the site last week. Um, yes. Our most recent uh, reader results poll. And the question this month was um, underrated books. Which mm -hmm. books are the most underrated? You crunched the numbers so you can tell me more about that. But the, the, the number one got only nine people voted for the number one book in the results, which tells us a lot of things, which is there's a big spread here. Huge. Um, because the, the winning, uh, the number one ranked result in our previous ones would have hundreds of votes, mm -hmm. right? So unsurprisingly, I guess we sort of talked about this when we were putting the poll together. It's like, what are these results going to look like? Probably there's not going to be something that's overwhelming favorite. But, you know, for example, you included the top 13 because only 13 titles got more than four votes. Um, so, you know, the number one got more than twice as many responses as the number 10 pick on the list. So mm -hmm. there's a little bit of weird stuff going on there. But it's I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith, which I've never heard of. I know nothing about. Do you? Yeah, I do. Um, what is this? What is it about? I don't know what it's about. This is one of those books that I'm like ambiently aware of. Yeah, I should read um, this, I guess. But I have no idea what it's about. And uh, Liberty, who's one of our fellow writers at Book Riot, has mentioned it in several of our Well Redheads columns that she loves this book. I've heard other readers mention this as a favorite. Um, I remember that it came up in the voting for the What Are Your Favorite Books poll as well, but it didn't mm. crack that top list. Uh, to my not, I don't think it cracked that top list. No, I don't remember. Didn't. I would have um, So I wasn't that surprised to see it. Uh, Full. So, so some more information about the survey. We had yep. um, 576 of our Book Riot readers took the survey. Um, because we know it's really hard to just pick one book for these things, we always give three spaces. So um, they each of those 576 had up to three places to list a book that they thought was underrated. And the um, responses included 1,154 <laughs> unique titles. Man. So yeah, as you just said, 13 of those got four votes or more. 30 titles got three 
three votes. 133 titles got two votes and everything else got one vote. So there are a whole lot of books that at least one person <laughs> thinks yeah. are underrated. Um, I think some of it here like, is a problem of definition. Like, What does underrated mean to right. different readers? Um, favorite can mean a lot of things too, I guess. But un- is underrated a really excellent book um, that people don't think is very good? Is it uh, a book that you love that you don't think enough people have heard of? Is it like an awesome book by a well-known author that's just not as well-known as that author's most popular mm-hmm. book? Um, I think there are lots of shades yeah. of stuff here. Well, I thought about it as like, what are the books that you love that you wish got more attention? Right. And we left it vague because we wanted people to not feel constrained by our own definition of underrated. And I think you're right about, I think some people thought about all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the list of 13 that is at the top represents both, I think, things that most readers haven't heard of at all. And then also things people have heard of, but maybe we just don't think they get enough attention. Like number 12 is a classic one. It's The Princess Bride by William Goldman, right? Well, everyone's right. heard of The Princess Bride, but a lot of people don't know that the book is really great too. Like right. the movie's Ditto. great. Ditto for number 13, The NeverEnding yeah. Story. Yeah, and The Phantom Tollbooth, number 11. Mm-hmm. So so that's one big group is like great books that became more famous as movies. Um, and so like the, they think the book is then underrated. Yeah, um, and, let's and number see. two was The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. It got six votes. That's, uh, that's sh- one I know a lot of people like. I'm, I was yeah. a little surprised to see it here, not because it's super popular, just that I felt like maybe it was – you know, kind of like the time traveler's wife that a lot of people, yeah. have, it's out there. It's not like a super, it's not the Gatsby, but people know about it anyway. Yeah. Number three with also six votes was Shantaram by uh, Gregory David mm-hmm. Roberts. Number four, finally a book I voted for made it onto oh, a really? list. That's interesting. The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell had five votes uh-huh. and one of those was mine. Um, that number five was Stoner by John Williams, which also had five which votes. Which always gets talked to as being underrated to the point where it's now maybe getting properly rated like this is an indie bookseller right. favorite lit fic favorite um anyway that's one i'm not surprised to see it on the list which means it's a surprise to see it on the yeah, list if that makes sense I'm, you know i was looking at these more and i think a while back we were talking about james salter and what it means to be called a writer's writer yeah and how that's sort of like you you do really beautiful things that are only really appreciated by other writers <laughs> it's and it's sort of like damning with faint praise um i think that some of these titles that are on this underrated list are like book lovers books yeah the sparrow um, like, is one of those if i'm right, a winner's stuff, night a traveler by calvino is one of those yeah i think stoner is one of those like these books that people who uh who people like us who love to read, who uh, have being a reader as a key part of their identity and who spend a lot of time reading and thinking mm-hmm. about books. Uh, Stoner particularly and The Shadow of the Wind are both largely about what books do in people's lives. Right. Um, Stoner is what, about a uh, mediocre, a sad English professor in Missouri in the early 20th century. I know that blurb is going to make you run out to your bookstore. It's so and get, good, though. It's, it's very so good. good. It's very good. As an English professor, hey, I'm a sucker for this stuff. So, <laughs> uh, But that's, you know, Stoner is, is the name of the professor. And it's by John Williams, who did not, is not the same John Williams who scored Star Wars. There's a lot yeah. of confusion. You know, and maybe some of these, it's interesting that you mentioned that the pitch for Stoner. Some of these are books that are really hard to pitch. Like, yeah, right. Like The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell is set slightly in the 
future. It's about what happens when the Jesuits, uh, which are you know, sort of you know a branch of Catholic priests that are very academic, they um, detect music coming from outer space, and they put together a team that's like a priest who is a linguist, and they have a bunch of scientists, and then they also have some like anthropology people. They put together this team, and they fly them to this planet that is sending music back down to Earth to interact with the beings there and um, to, you know, to research what else is out there. Of course, because these are Catholic priests, there's also a lot of like, what does it mean that there's other life in Mm -hmm. the universe? And what is There's a lot of uh, really interesting stuff about what's the nature of faith and the nature of belief. And um, if there's a master plan, then why do really terrible things happen to people? Like it's hard to pitch. Like yeah, whenever it sounds like I talk, Douglas Adam had a stroke. Like <laughs> right. that's what the pitch is. Like. When I talk about it, I'm like, really, this is one of my favorite books ever. <laughs> it's in my all-time top five. It's been there for at least a decade. But like Jesuits in space, sort of boils it down to less than what it really is, and a a big story about the nature of faith. Like that doesn't sound like something that's that's super exciting, but I've yet to give this book to a person who has not loved it. Um, I think maybe that's the problem here is these are books that at least at the top that are hard to pitch to people. No, that's interesting. And we should talk about Russell sometime because she's a really, because then she, her most recent book was called doc and it didn't sell Mm -hmm. at all, but it was, it's a, novel based on Doc Holliday. And it's also great, but it's so different than The Sparrow. Right. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, and she's a scientist by by yeah, training. Yeah, she is super interesting. Um, so anyway, we'll put the link in the show notes there, see the most underrated books. I'm going to read a couple of these at some point. I'm going to read that first one for sure mm-hmm. um, that I know nothing about. Um, we better get to author birthdays and new books and get the heck out of Dodge here. Let's do it, man. Um, okay, author birthdays. Albert Camus. Born November 7th, 1913 in Algiers, France. Um, Camus was a lifelong pacifist. Even when these guys called the Nazis, you heard of these guys? Yeah, vaguely. Uh, came rolling through France. Um, so he didn't take up arms, but what he did is he took up his pen and became part of the French resistance and was um, one of the editors to the largest um, French resistance newsletter and newspaper. Um, that's in, you know we talk a lot about these. I want little movies, bit movies based on some of these episodes and authors' lives. Would you watch a movie about Camus as an editor for the French Resistance newspaper? Yes, you would. That is the right answer. <laughs> um, so, happy birthday to Albert Camus, who had been a hundred years old. This that year. should be like a Sunday morning series on yeah, you know, on like PBS, right. a half hour little half hour dramas that reenact. Like Author really interesting stuff. vignettes. Yeah. Uh, you know, another one that would be good is uh, Margaret Mitchell. I've got another one that for you that would fit this one, who was born November 8th in 1900 in Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia. Uh, Mitchell uh, grew up in Atlanta, and she was known as a tomboy. Um, and it all stems, she says, back to one particular incident that happened when she was playing out in the yard and her dress caught on fire somehow. And she was running back into the house, and her dress then also got stuck on the iron gate <laughs> and was sort of stuck on the gate burning uh, her dress. And she was um, remarkably uninjured, but her mother, who saw this happen, was traumatized and wouldn't let her wear skirts anymore. 
um, huh. because she was afraid of the danger that um, they, they, she saw that they posed. Um, and so she had to wear pants until her coming out um, several years later. But this apparently caused a lot of upheaval in her own sort of personal identity. She started going by the name Jimmy. Um, and she said until she was 14, she really considered herself a boy. Huh. Which I think is really interesting, especially That's super interesting. knowing the gender stuff that happens in Gone no, with the Wind. Everybody wants to talk about Hemingway's mother putting him in dresses, but yeah. no one talks about the Margaret Mitchell, Mitchell having to wear pants. Because she was on fire in her dress and stuck on a gate. <laughs> uh, little Jimmy Mitchell. Uh, so She's a super interesting yes. lady. You yes. know, I have to confess, I think I maybe have confessed this on the show already, that I haven't ever read Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. But a friend of mine here in Richmond, her name is Ellen Brown, uh, wrote a biography of Margaret Mitchell a couple of years ago called Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. And it's about Mitchell's life, but also it's really super publishing nerdy. Like it's about the story of how the book got published and then mm. what Gone with the Wind did in publishing culture, mm. which is a lot. Like I don't know here, that. Here is your publishing nerd fact for the week is that Margaret Mitchell is largely responsible for um, what international copyright law looks like oh. with books that are published in the U.S. Because Gone with the Wind came out, it was huge, and international copyright didn't really exist. Like, there hadn't been a bestseller that had gone from America into other countries and been a bestseller there as well. So, um, and at that point, you were responsible for your own international copyright. Like, it was not a thing that publishers did for you as a writer. So someone in France would like make a bootleg reprint in French and on basically an unauthorized translation of mm. Gone with the Wind and then would start to sell it and would make profits on it. And so Margaret Mitchell spent a lot of her time after publishing Gone with the Wind, hunting down people that were publishing translations and versions in other countries and making sure that she got her cut. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, though I, I like the dress on fire. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you, you just swoop in here with more interesting stuff than I bring, and you expect me to be okay with it. I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to. Think this about is that. like at one time in 26 shows, oh, okay, I have actually right, read enough. a biography of an author that talks about <laughs> on birthday. Slow right. your roll, Leo. Yeah, all right. So you know what? We need a we need a biopic of uh, Margaret Mitchell. We do for sure. It can start with like one of those hazy memories of her being on fire at the gate. Um, and end with sort of her uh, her sort of uh, publisher's lieutenants wandering Europe looking for people who haven't given them money. <laughs> um, we have one new book we're going to talk about this week, too. Yeah, really interesting stuff. And I'm going to do this. Have you read about this at all? Did you look into this at all? I watched the trailer for it. It's uh, super creepy. It's weird. Um, the novel, were, well, I guess we'll call it a novel. It's a book, a print book only um, called S, mm -hmm. um, period. Uh, by J.J. Abrams. And yes, it is that J.J. Abrams. The J.J. Abrams of Lost, of Star Trek, of soon-to-be writer, director of the new Star Wars movies, um, wrote and created and shaped this book called S, which, boy, how are we going to describe this? Um, he describes it as a love letter to the printed word, but it's a story um, about an amnesiac who is trying to remember a book they wrote or read or something. And all of that is meaningfully unclear. Um, the book itself has print, but then there's also a lot of m printed, colored, handwritten marginalia around different pieces of it. 
So it's someone trying to figure out something about the book that you're reading is part of the book. Does that make sense? Am I, mm-hmm. am I, is this going at all? It I, does. I wish we had planned this because I have a copy of it sitting oh, yeah. wrapped in my galley pile in another room. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Well, maybe you should take a look at it. We could tell us if it's interesting yeah. next week. But then there's also like postcards and other things slipped into the pages. That's why it's shrink wrapped so the stuff doesn't fall ah. out. Um, and Wired says it's awesome. That, cool. that's the, the TLDR version they give you is it's like having lost downloaded into your brain. And it's it a lot of fun if you like, like this sort of thing. like a good thing to do on a cozy fall weekend. Yeah. Too. I think this might be a pick for our gift show that we're going to do in a few weeks. And maybe if you, yeah. we're going to do a gift show in a few weeks where we're going to recommend books to give for gifts this holiday season. Um, and I'm going to, I'm not actually going to say who I think this is a good fit for, but I've got some specific ideas. But if you want to send us an email, podcast at bookride.com of, of, of someone you're trying to buy a book for, um, tell us what they like to read, who they are, what they're interested in. This person could be you. Um, and we'll try to pick some books out um, for our Thanksgiving weekend show. So that's S by J.J. Abrams, only available in print. It sounds like a pretty interesting little document. Um, I thought it was more twee than I was prepared to entertain as being something I would look at, but I might be into this. Uh, it's too, yeah, it's too soon to tell. Yeah, I don't think J.J. Abrams does twee. No, nah, he doesn't. He does earnest, but not twee. Yeah, that's true. But So we'll, we'll see. I will, uh, but now both I'm of you really... and I are in for earnest. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Not I mean, earnest of various varieties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, we're <laughs> yeah. not going to ding something for being earnest. That's like right. not our style. <laughs> right. Uh, I will take a look at it and I will report yeah. back next week what that experience is like. Um, I don't have a new print book to talk oh, about okay. this week, but I think recently we talked about um, Audible rolling out new audiobook versions of stuff. And one of my very favorite books is The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. And it is now new narrated by Brian Cranston, who played Walter White on Breaking Bad. Um, I downloaded that thing the first day it was available. I've been listening to it in the car, like in little snippets. Hoo boy. Yeah. On the Jeff and Rebecca shared canon, like our favorite books that cross over, the things they carried, the complete work of Toni Morrison and James Salter. So Mm -hmm. those are are the... um, the, the things that over that overlaps and the things they carried is a remarkable book oh, about the Vietnam War. Brian and, um, Cranston's performance of this book is just really incredible. Um, I was not warned before the first time I read the things they carried. Oh. And I've told the story many times. I think of Kiowa. I've, <laughs> I've Kiowa. Finished, I finished reading it on a plane. Oh, and like, Shinsky, I am not I'm a so big sorry. crier. I know it's so bad. I'm not a big crier, but I was bawling mm. um, on a packed plane flying home for Thanksgiving in college. Um, and I'm sure that people thought I was insane. Uh, it was totally worth it. You know, the book is incredible. It's really beautiful. Um, I've seen Tim O'Brien read and he cried, and so then everyone else cried. Mm. Uh, but Brian Cranston reading this um, is it's just remarkable. Yeah. Um, his voice is wonderful, but his the inflection and the feeling that he gives these stories um, about the Vietnam War is really incredible. Um, I was like, I had a little driveway moment with Brian Cranston the other day, where I thought that. I was going to be sitting in my driveway bawling with my neighbors staring at me. <laughs> uh, so if you're doing, we've had Audible sponsor the show before, and if you're doing uh, Audible and you like Brian Cranston, even if you've never heard of the things they carried, I highly, highly recommend. All right, we got to wrap up the show. One more follow-up bit. Um, we talked last week about why new releases come out on Tuesdays. Oh, yeah. And um, we got some good answers. Um, and thanks to, uh, um, let's see, who gave us? Thomas Lawson gave us yeah. one. Um, 
This is actually, I did some research, and it turns out that someone who calls himself the liberal artist in the comments on the show last week put me on the trail. Mm. But this is because of Walmart and Target. Oh. Yeah. Okay. They restocked their shelves on, on Monday nights for Tuesday mornings. Hmm. So if you launched your book on Wednesday, you'd have to wait six days for it to get put on the shelf. So they started releasing it on Tuesday so it could be there. Um, and that turned out to be correct. It's, there's not a canonical source that that's right. Um, but I looked at several um, sites that um, people who work in publishing and used to work in publishing sort of hmm. all trace it back to that particular uh, moment. So that's interesting. Big that's retail really... shaping um, the way yeah, we read books. That's a good reminder yeah. that Walmart and Target are still important yep. uh, in book retail. Um, Not to mention Costco. I don't know oh, if, yeah. if this rule, but if your book gets picked as the pennies pick, which is like the monthly Costco book club, you are just golden. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, we got to wrap up the show. So we got more. We got stories we got to talk about next week. You can email us uh, podcast at bookride.com. We got feedback to any of this stuff. Um, uh, let's see. You can rate us on iTunes. We're getting close to 100 ratings. So, so excited. Get, get very close to that. Uh, let's see. Email us about if you've got book recommendations you'd like us to do for the gift show. You can find us on Twitter at Book Riot, at Rebecca Shinsky, at Reading Ape. Um, let's see. What else do we need to tell them? That's oh, it. Oh, we've got a short survey. Short, another survey. We're going to just have surveys till the end of time. Right. Um, we're just, you know, we're trying to lock in the absolute best sponsors for our readers and or for our listeners. Uh, so when you check out the show notes at podcast or bookriot.com slash podcast, uh, we will have a link to a survey. It'll take you a couple minutes. It'll just let us know a little bit about who you are and what you're interested in so we can find the best sponsors for the show. Sponsors like swoonreads.com and tryaudiobooks.com. Thank you guys so much for sponsoring the show and Book Riot. And I guess we'll talk to you guys next week. Have a good week.